Welcome to the Not A Podcast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter Song of Ice and Fire podcast going through all five published books, one chapter a week. I am your host, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish. And my name is Emmett Booth. I go by Poor Quentin on Tumblr and Twitter. And welcome to our inaugural episode. This is uh, pretty exciting because... uh, this is something we actually talked about, you know, a year and a half ago about starting a podcast together, and now it's cool to kind of, kind of get back into it and, and, and do it for real. Um, this is a little bit different for um, for some folks um, in, in that it's a deep dive through the books, and it's a, a reread podcast, and um, we're kicking it off today with the first chapter of the first book from the Game of Thrones prologue from the perspective of Will. But uh, before we get into that, we thought it might be a good idea to introduce ourselves and who we are and what we've done previously within the Song of Ice and Fire community. So like I said, my name is Emmett. I go by Poor Quentin. You may have seen my stuff on Tumblr, poorquentin.tumblr.com, or at my uh, Twitter Twitter account. I do a lot of a Song of Ice and Fire writing on both those. I covered Game of Thrones Season 7 for Deadspin this past year. Uh, hopefully looking to do more writing on the show on its eventual Season 8 whenever we do get to it. And you may have seen my yes. stuff pop up on... Deadspin, Vulture, Vice, just a couple other locations. But yeah, I'm mostly known for my Tumblr page, like I said, poorquentin.tumblr.com, and uh, on the Twitter. And you, your reviews on Deadspin were the premier reviews. And I, and I love like a number of, of different reviewers, Joanna Robinson, a couple other ones that I, I like a lot. But I really enjoyed your reviews, um, probably probably the most. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> well, Thanks, man. Find out. I'll, I'll keep that a secret. Yeah, I love Joanna's stuff, too, and a couple other reviewers. But yeah, it was it was highly enjoyable. To I love Deadspin a lot, too. I like the editors I met there. So oh, yeah. I had a lot of fun covering season seven, for sure. Yeah, and um, and yeah, I really look forward to your stuff from season eight and for the Game of Thrones spinoff show, hopefully, when that, uh, whenever that evolves whenever we get into, to that. into a new thing. Yeah. So how about your, um, you, sir? What's your deal? I, I'm Jeff, as I said, I'm Brenda Beefish. Uh, you might know me from the, uh, the website Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire WordPress.com, where I've done a fair amount of essay writing since 2013 or so. Um, I'm a moderator on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit on, on Reddit, so feel free to check out that. Uh, I've also been published in places like Vanity Fair, Deadspin as well, uh, briefly, Watchers on the Wall. Um, and um, a friend reminded me that I was published a number of years ago in the Baltimore Sun, our local newspaper here, so... <laughs> So feel free to like to try and find me on the Baltimore Sun from like 2011 <laughs> if you're really that interested in, in stuff I was running about back then. It was not a Song of Ice and Fire related. Um, but yeah, I'm super thrilled to be here and super um, excited to be doing this podcast. Um, it, it's it's really something I, I haven't done. I, you've done podcasting. We've been guests on different podcasts before. Yes, that's a good um, point. Prim- Probably most recently on, on Game of Owns, right? We've done their some of their chapters that they've done. Yeah, Game of Owns are some of my favorite people. Just wonderful, sweet, smart, warm people. We've both been on that show. We've been on History of Westeros. I've written for oh, them yeah. once or twice. Uh, and yeah, there's a, a bunch of... The podcasting community in this particular fandom is really rich and enjoyable. So I've been very happy to take part in that. And now to throw our own hats in the ring. And, yeah. and supersede all of them with our clearly superior podcast. <laughs> Right, our absolutely objectively superior podcast. But in all seriousness, though, it, it kind of feels like we're standing on the shoulders of giants in, in doing this podcast. We've had so many friends that have gone before us. Uh, we mentioned History of Westeros, Game of Owns, um, and Radio Westeros, and, and a couple other ones. Davos' some of the fingers re- do a great job, and they do chapter-by-chapter yeah. chapter stuff. Uh, not on the podcast side, but on the chapter-by-chapter chapter side. 
I got into the fandom by reading Stephen Atwell's stuff at Race for oh, the yeah. Iron Throne. He does a, a chapter awesome. by chapter analysis that is just really compelling and really strong, and he's, he brings a lot of knowledge of history and military affairs. He's a, he's a professor, so he knows what he's talking about. And that's right. the stuff that really started getting me interested in writing my own stuff, and that kind of led me to, to Jeff's writing and a bunch of other people on Tumblr. So that's definitely something we recommend, and like Jeff said, we are standing on the shoulders of giants in this regard. No, it's 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 super awesome that we have this this community, and and that's you know, if if I can like uh, kind of talk for a second about that, like the really cool thing about a song of ice and fire is the community, and you know both Emmett and I have have both been influenced by people in the community, whether it's Stephen Atwell, History of Westeros, the Marinese Blot, uh, different types of um, meta analysis or theorizing. Um, the song of ice and fire community is just super awesome, and we're like. We're, we're thrilled to, to be a part of it and, and perhaps contribute something new in doing this. Um, the idea behind this podcast is that it's a, a reread podcast. So what that means is that we are anticipating that if you're listening to us, you've re, we've read the books at least one time and you're rereading with us or maybe you're just enjoying going through the books through our, our, our perspective. Um if you have not read the books before and you're reading with us, you know, feel free to keep listening to us, but just be aware that as we're going through our expectation is that we'll be talking about all of the books. So all the published books, and that includes Game of Thrones, a Clash of Kings, a Storm of Swords, a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons. But it also includes the Duncan Egg series, the three novellas that George R. R. Martin has released in the past 20 years or so. Um, the World of Ice and Fire, uh, the two, no, excuse me, now the three Targaryen histories that have come out, and then eventually we'll be getting into Fire and Blood Volume 1, and, you know, you know, fingers crossed, hopefully the Winds of Winter, if and when that comes out here in the next, you know, you know, probably the next week or so, right, is when the Winds of Winter is going to come out. Exactly. Any day now, Jeff, I swears it. But yeah, spo- <laughs> so yeah, spoilers alert, uh, reader beware across the board. We are especially inclined towards talking about A Dance with Dragons because we are part of a fervent cult that believes it's actually the best of the series by far <laughs> and that y'all read it wrong and that one day it'll be <laughs> redeemed. Uh, Jeff mentioned the Miranese blot. Uh, Adam Feldman, who wrote that blog, is also a big proponent of that and really really yes. got me interested in starting to reread Dance and notice things that I hadn't noticed about it before. So I definitely recommend his essays on the subject. But yeah, lo- lo- long and short of it, we are going to be talking about the entire breadth of the series, even as we focus initially, of course, on the first book. So keep right. that in mind. And then a question that came up on, on Twitter, on our, our Twitter site, which is at Nauticast, A-S-O-I-F, A-S-O-I-A-F, um, was whether we'd be talking about Game of Thrones, the, t- the television show. And while it won't be the focal point of our analysis and theorizing and some of the things we'll talk about, it will be mentioned from time to time, and I would say that some of the stuff, especially as the later seasons have progressed, help inform our viewpoint on how certain storylines are going to progress. Stuff like Stannis and Shireen, the possibility that, or the probability, I guess, at this point, that John and Daenerys will eventually get together at, at some at some level. So we'll be re- we'll be reading through the books with some of the stuff that the show has talked about um, in mind, but it won't be the the, the emphasis of the show now. Perhaps when season eight comes out or when the, the spinoff show comes out, we'll have special episodes about some of the episodes, each episode they go through. Or, you know, there might be the possibility that someone will be demand uh, at the top of their lungs that we talk about the Stannis and Shireen episode from season five or the Battle of the Bastards or how any number of storylines that the show is, has 
interpreted and, and adapted from a song of ice and fire and whether it's it's good or not um and, and that kind of brings us to something else we've discussed internally and we haven't really come to a conclusion yet so just bear that in mind when i talk about this we have talked about doing special episodes and in doing that having some sort of patreon campaign where you can find these special episodes there will sometimes be audio essays sometimes discussions um, maybe some q a live casts on youtube um, and then, like I said earlier, some video live cast when Game of Thrones season eight airs and when the spinoff show kicks off. But again, we're, we're, we're still at the, the very, at the Genesis stage of this podcast. So we don't want to overstep, um, ourselves necessarily and overcommit ourselves too, as we're trying to do this, um, this podcast. And, and that should bring us up to something else that I should have mentioned, mentioned very early on is that we're looking at doing one chapter a week. So... You're listening to the Game of Thrones podcast this week, whenever this week is going to be released. The week after that, you'll get the first episode, the, the next episode should be a Game of Thrones brand one, and then after that, Catelyn one, and so on and so forth. Now, um, so the intent is to do one chapter a week. Um, you can reread with us. You can just listen to us. It doesn't matter. We're, 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 pretty, we're pretty chill guys, if I, do, if I do say so myself. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, I think that the show will come up incidentally. It'll come up in conversation. It'll probably, you know, something will spark our interest in mentioning how the show did something differently or accurately, but it's not a specific, set-aside, consistent focus of this podcast. Like like Jeff said, we might do special episodes of it down the line, especially as the show itself progresses, as HBO does different things with it. But it's not a show-versus-book podcast. It's a reread podcast of the book, and the show will come up naturally in that, as it will. And I expect probably... Probably not so much for the first book, because season one, for better or for worse, is a very accurate, faithful translation of A Game of Thrones, the book, for the most part. So there's really not much to say other than, yep, they sure did translate that. Like, the most interesting <laughs> stuff comes up in the later seasons and the later books with the different adaptational decisions they made. So probably not a lot of that at first. But yeah, it'll 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 certainly come up in conversation, but I think that's the extent of it as as far as discussions of the show will be, at least for now. Like Jeff said, we might move on later, but that's what it is for now. Yeah. Um, and that, that does remind me off topic is that um, when I was first introduced to the books, my brother introduced me to the books and he said, oh, you're going to read the first book. And, I, and at this point, I, I watched the first two seasons of Game of Thrones. And he said, you, you're going to read the first book and you're going to be like, oh, this is like the director's cut of season one. And I, I did really actually feel that. I think he was he's absolutely correct in that it season one is a very faithful adaptation. There are some differences um, from the source material from A Game of Thrones, but it is it is a pretty faithful adaptation. Um, it's it's it is a complicated story, but it's not as complicated of a story as 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 later books get. Um, but yeah, so bear that in mind. We will talk about the show. So if you're just books only, uh, you know, bear with us, I guess, for lack of a better term, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll do this together. So. Um, the first chapter we have in A Song of Ice and Fire in the entire series is the prologue from A Game of Thrones. And so without further ado, Emmett, why don't you take us into the prologue and talking about what happens in it? My pleasure, brother. So each book in A Song of Ice and Fire so far, and we have every reason to believe this will continue, begins with a prologue, simply entitled Prologue, from the point of view of a character who is not a recurring POV, as in, unlike... Arya, John, Jamie, Sansa, Bran, Davos, etc. They don't get multiple chapters over the course of the series telling their story. They get one and done. There's one chapter from their POV, and generally speaking, with both the prologue and the epilogue POVs, they die at the end. Now, that isn't 100% true. 
Chet doesn't die at the end of his prologue POV in A Storm of Swords. He dies shortly afterwards. Veramir technically doesn't die at the end of his dance prologue POV. True. He simply moves on to another form of life. But he, functionally speaking, their job is to ha give you this, this one brief window on how things are going in their part of the world and then kind of be swept off screen. The, P the prologue POVs are people who generally realize at the end of their chapter there's smallness within the bigger picture. They are not reoccurring characters. They are not the hero. They are not the focus. They realize that they were simply there to give you their perspective on one angle of things. They are, like I said, they are they are pawns in a larger game. The, the prologue POVs tend to focus on the, the magical side of the storyline rather than the political side of the storyline. I mean, the politics get in there, but generally speaking, the prologues focus on magical elements kind of interfering with or imposing upon the political side of things. The prologue POVs all have their little their little plans, their little angles, their little worlds, and over the course of their prologue chapter, the giant metaphysical big picture intrudes on that and kind of sweeps them away. And you're left with this very kind of existential melancholy about how these people tried to live their lives and tried to achieve what they wanted, but ultimately fell short and were, were brought low by the real powerful forces of this world. In this case... The uh, prologue pew of a Game of Thrones has not only the job of kind of expressing that thematically, but also setting up the entire series. Later prologue POVs will connect two distinct plots within their books, like Crescent's prologue in A Clash of Kings kind of gives way to Davos's POV on Team Stannis. Chet's prologue POV in A Storm of Swords kind of gives way to Sam's POV on the Night's Watch as they retreat back towards the Wall. But uh, this prologue POV has, has the job of setting up the entire series, even though the characters within this chapter will, except for the chapter immediately following it, will never be seen or heard from again. They have to do the job of introducing you to this world, what matters, what are the key components, and what's important about it. And I think that it does a great job, specifically within the context, as I mentioned, of, of people realizing their lives and dreams and goals are being swept away by the huge metaphysical forces of this world, the hinges of the world, to quote Melisandre. So in this particular case, what we have is a prologue POV that introduces us to the existence of the others, the primary antagonist and primary metaphysical force within that story, from the perspective of the Night's Watch, people who are were originally put on guard on the giant wall of ice to protect humanity from this force, from the others, but have gradually forgotten what they were there to do and are now kind of swept up in this uh, endless war with the wildlings, which is not only horrifying in and of itself in terms of how people behave, but also, as the series will go on to demonstrate, is a waste of resources and energy in the face of the, the apocalypse that is coming for all of them. And this chapter kind of acts as a, a microcosm, a synecdoche of that overall struggle, where you see the Night's Watch are out in routine, hunting wildlings, trying to find out what's going on with them, and then they are immediately brought to face with this far larger, far more powerful force that is out to destroy both Night's Watch and Wildlings alike. They prove themselves ultimately powerless before those that force, although there is a kind of existential triumph that we will get to later in this discussion. Yes. And they are they are swept aside. So at the end of the chapter, we are left with this perception of, of a humanity that is unaware that they are simply rolling out the red carpet for the end of the world, that they are, they are powerless and helpless before the forces that mean to destroy them. And now we are left to, we are left to kind of, sort through the remains of it like the rest of a game of thrones as a book does not deal heavily with this magical apocalyptic side of things uh, it does not deal with the 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 rising tide the return of magic the age of wonder and terror to borrow from the fourth book most of a game of thrones is very focused on individuals taking part in political actions and trying to out scheme each other most of the book with the exception of this prologue uh, bran gets a vision or two Dany gets involved with some blood magic but most of the book deals 
with secular, political, real-world concerns. But the fact that it starts with this chapter, where those real-world, secular, political concerns are wiped away by the others, that's supposed to ha leave you with a thought in the back of your head as you read this first book that all of this is going to be swept away. All of this is going to be ash and dust. All these little machinations of Ned, Littlefinger, the Dothraki, Viserys, Daenerys, all these characters... Ultimately, this is all taking place within the context of the Long Night. Winter is coming for all of these characters. That doesn't mean their machinations are pointless or uninteresting, but it does mean that, again, it all takes place under that shadow. We are supposed to keep this prologue in the back of our mind as we read the rest of the book, that the White Walkers are coming to get rid of all of this. And for me, that's what really makes this prologue powerful, and that's what makes it work within the context of this book. Yeah, it's... it's The, the prologue overshadows all of Game of Thrones, you know, you can go from Eddard Stark and King's Landing to Daenerys Targaryen and Pentos and the Dothraki Sea, but none of that, and, and then Catelyn in the Vale and Tyrion in the Vale eventually, but all of that is overshadowed by the others coming. It's really interesting how Martin does this because in this chapter, we have the most amount of information about the others that we get in the entirety of the five published books. Now, the others, or the White Walkers, if you prefer, appear again in Sam's chapters in A Storm of Swords, but that's the only other time we see them on stage. And that has an impact on us in that we know that there is a magical threat that is coming for the world, but we spend 98% of A Game of Thrones and close to 100% of A Clash of Kings on the threat of the Lannisters or the threat of Viserys Targaryen or the threat of the Dothraki. And that has an impact on us as readers. Um, it's a really interesting way that Martin sets up the whole dynamic in A Song of Ice and Fire. And, it, and, it's, an instant, and it's instantly a great hook because yes. I think it, it, it tends to subvert our reader expectation and that we're like, okay, well, now it's going to be the story about how the others and humanity is engaged in this titanic struggle. But that's not what Martin does. He intentionally subverts that, and he brings us in the next chapter to Bran and Winterfell. And the others aren't mentioned at all except for as sort of some sort of ghost story, I think for, I think is, is a good way of putting it. Um, and you don't see really the others you see in, in, in A Game of Thrones and in the rest of the story until you get to a couple of key passages, which we'll talk about as we get to them. Um but it's cool in this chapter that you get that overarching existential threat that humanity will have to face at some point in time, hopefully in the Winds of Winter or in A Dream of Spring. And um, it, it's all set up here. And we have, all the, we have as much information as Martin has allowed us to have in this chapter about the others and about this, these demons of the night, as Melisandre calls them in A Storm of Swords. I agree. There's this ironic juxtaposition throughout A Game of Thrones where you have... Again, you are supposed to care about the political machinations. You are very much supposed to care about what happens to Ned, about the truth of Joffrey's parentage, about what Littlefinger's up to. All these things are, are very, you know, vital and dramatic. But you, you have this constant juxtaposition where you have, like, Rob going off to fight for his, his father, and he's going to, you know, claim the heritage of the North. But you have Osha telling Bran he's marching the wrong way. Yes. All those swords need to be in the North where the real threat is. Or you have, you know, this, this real intense philosophical and personal debate between Ned and Cersei about how they've lived their lives and you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Is it, are you willing to kill children if they're not your own children to, to win that game? At the same time, you have Gior Mormont, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch at the Wall, saying when the dead men come walking in the night, it doesn't matter who sits the Iron Throne. 
So it's constantly reading this series, especially in this first book, is trying to keep these dual ideas in mind. That you are reading a war story, but you are also reading a story that says the war story is irrelevant. And that's that's yes. kind of a, that's an interesting, fascinating debate I think you can have within the, within the story and both among the fandom about what's most important and what needs to be sacrificed. Because, I mean, simply us saying that what matters is the fight against the others, that doesn't make Roos and Ramsey Bolton go away. That doesn't right. mean that Rob has no reason to be angry about what's done to his family. It just means you have this context that makes those debates, that give those, puts those debates in a new light. And I think yeah. it makes you think in, more interestingly. Yeah, it's part of Martin's anti-war critique, I think, is his saying that look at look at what a waste of resources this war is given the real fight that's coming and how that how the War of Five Kings is leaving humanity unprepared for that fight. But thematic stuff aside, let's let's uh, drill down to the nitty-gritty here, the, the, the structure of this prologue chapter. So our POV is Will... A man of the Night's Watch. He is uh, uh, going on a, a quest north of the Wall, being led by Sir Waymar Royce, leading the mission. And they have a third uh, uh, colleague, uh, Garrett of the Night's Watch, a very kind of seasoned veteran of of the of the Crows. So, how would you how would you lay out the structure of this chapter, Jeff? So the, the the chapter starts with we should start back, which is a really cool way of throwing us in the middle of of what's going on. Um, even though this is the genesis of A Song of Ice and Fire, you're immediately thrown into what feels like a lived-in world. Um, in that these characters are midway through the mission. This 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 chapter doesn't start when they depart Castle Black. It doesn't start with long introductions of the three major characters in the chapter. It starts with them in the middle of the in the middle of the of their way north of the wall, and they're in the woods. And they're not lost, but they are a little confused about what's going on. So you have three characters, like Emmett said. You have Will, Garrett, and Sir Waymer Royce. Um, Sir Waymer Royce is the in charge of the mission, even though this is his first ranging north of the wall. You have Garrett, which occupies the other spectrum. He's in his 50s at this point in, in the story. And he's been with the Night's Watch for 30-plus years now. And then you have Will in the middle, who's been in the Night's Watch for four years how Martin does this chapter is a fascinating look at how good writers write. And what I mean by that is that Martin is, and I, and I talked about this earlier, but Martin is consistently subverting reader expectation about what's going to happen next. So the, like I said, the chapter starts with, we should start back. And then you have this long discussion about the wildlings are dead. No, they're not dead. Why are they, are they frozen to death? They're not frozen to death. How could they not be frozen to death? Well, and then Sir Waymer Royce, who is a a jerk in this entire chapter until the very end, which we'll get to, um, is kind of smart, too. He says that the, the wildlings are not dead. They haven't frozen to death because the wall is weeping, meaning that the temperatures are high enough that people can't freeze to death lying on the ground. Um, so then you have this whole discussion. They have to go then farther on to find the wildling camp. Sir Waymer Royce leads the march with Will. They leave Garrett behind. Blah, 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 blah. You guys have probably read the chapter now. Um, to die, kind of dial down into how Martin structured the chapter and talks about some of the, the thematic tension and the narrative tension that's in the chapter, what Martin does is that he builds up the dread throughout the chapter. Early in the chapter, we know that it's cold, the wind is rising, and there's a deepening night and gloom. And all of that works to, to deepen the horror of the chapter and what's to come at the end of the chapter. Something is wrong. The experiences that the Night's Watchmen have, at least the two veteran ones being Will and Garrett, 
they know that something feels off about this, uh, where they're at right now. There's that whole quote that Will has and says, until tonight, something was different tonight. So Martin uses the rising tension, the winds and the cold increase. The wildlings are dead, but then when they actually get to the camp, they're gone. And that's that has a major impact on uh, the reader because you're like, well, how do the wildlings disappear? How are they? If they're dead, Will saw them dead. We have no reason to distrust that Will is lying, or rather to believe that Will is lying. What happened with the wildlings? So then the chapter concludes with Will climbing a tree, and then the others coming, surrounding Waymar, and then killing Waymar in, in an epic duel, which we'll talk about here in a second. And then you have the false ending, which is that Waymar dies, and that um, Will is still up in the tree. He climbs down from the tree, but then he he's examining Sir Waymar Royce's body, and then, surprise, Waymar rises and strangles Will. And it's this um, this thing where I, where I talked about at the very beginning, where, where Martin is consistently where Martin is consistently subverting audience expectations that you would expect that Waymar dying to be the titular end of the chapter, but instead that's not the end. The end is when Sir Waymar Royce rises from the dead and then strangles Will with his cold black gloves, and and Will praying. That's how the chapter ends, and it's a cool way of doing it because Martin is is like I said subverting audience expectations. And that every single time you think that the story is going to go right, it goes left. When it goes left, when you expect it to go left, it goes right. And that's a cool way of of, of structuring a chapter. And uh, I don't know. I, I really enjoy it. What do you think about the structure of it? I completely agree. There's this constant sense of creeping dread that goes hand in hand with the uh, subversion you're talking about. Because it's consistently changing what it is you're supposed to be afraid of. Like, is it that you're just supposed to be afraid of the cold and the winter? I mean, that itself is a, enough of a thread. You can structure, dramatically, you can structure a chapter just around that. I mean, Garrett has this whole speech about how the cold comes, and they talk about the winds and the drifts 40 feet high, but it's the cold that gets you, boy. Like, And, <laughs> and you take him seriously, because he's the classic veteran who's speaking with authority and clearly knows better than these young kids. Uh, so that enough of us a threat. Or are the wildlings the threat? I mean, they're hunting them down. That's the structure of the chapter. They're looking for these people. You don't know anything about them besides that they're wildlings. But you know, you know, you've read enough books to know that, like, oh, that must be some sort of threat that these guardsmen are dealing with. Maybe that's there's going to be a fight at the end of the chapter. There's going to be a battle. That's what the threat is. Or is that, like, at one point, uh, Garrod gets so angry with how Waymar is mismanaging the situation that he goes for his sword. And Will thinks to himself, oh, if he pulls that sword out, you know, Waymore's doomed. So is that going to be the threat? Is it going to be an, an intra-fight in the Night's Watch? But no, it's going to be none of these things. The ultimate threat is going to be the one that none of them really saw coming. It's just what they sensed. Will go, you know, Will talks about he's, he's an experienced guy in the woods. He knows what he's doing. He's been out beyond the wall many times. He looks back at his earlier fears with laughter now. But until tonight, tonight was different. There's something in the cold or something in the atmosphere that he senses is a genuine threat, and that's the threat that emerges at the end of the chapter. And that's so, once all the subversion gets stripped away, you realize, oh, that's what the real, that's what we're really frightened of. And that gets back to the structure of the series as I was talking about earlier. You have all these political disputes, all these intrapersonal debates, but the others are kind of hovering over all of it, and eventually they step in to render everything else irrelevant. Yeah, it's it's interesting that the, the Night's Watch thinks that the Wildlings are the threat. They are the threat that they have to be concerned about. And they spend the entire chapter debating about whether the wildlings are dead, but it serves to set up this 
really interesting dynamic that is explored much more in A Clash of Kings and Into a Storm of Swords and then sees a bit of culmination in A Dance with Dragons of that the Night's Watch thinks, you know, we are not all the Night's Watch, but folks like John eventually come to the realization that the wildlings are not the real threat. They're, they're blood, they're flesh, they're, they're alive, they're human. The others are the real threat. And, you know, John spends the entirety of A Dance with Dragons attempting to convince everyone around him that the wildlings are not the threat. We need to bring them south of the wall or else if they, they don't, if they don't come south of the wall, then they'll, they'll be killed by the others and turn into whites and they'll be fighting against us near enough as makes no matter. So it's, it's interesting that the wildlings are set up and not, they're not fully fleshed out Mance Raider and Tormund Giants Bane at this point, but they are humans, right? They're humans and they're not the real threat to the Night's Watch. And I think that's something that you and I might have like taken some of your thunder away from a later point um, that you were going to talk about. Uh, but they, they are set up as, as, as a threat, but they're not the real threat. And in fact, they're, they turn out to be allies, for lack of a better term, of the Night's Watch come, come a dance with dragons. I totally agree. I mean, the wildlings in this chapter are dead. Like, they're, they couldn't possibly be a threat. They've been, they've been removed from the battlefield, so to speak. And the Night's Watch is left kind of grasping for straws about what their fight, what their quest is supposed to be about now that their supposed enemies are gone, and then they meet the real enemy, the one that's coming for all of them. And I, I agree. The Wildlings are not flushed out as human beings at this point. That doesn't really happen until Clash of Kings, when John goes beyond the wall. But even now, you see early in the structure of this chapter this strong sense that, that the Night's Watch versus the Wildlings is a fight we're supposed to transcend and get past, and the resistance against the others is the real fight. The fight that, as we'll get to with Waymar's Last Stand, hopefully brings the best out in us and allows us to kind of transcend the petty, arrogant, bigoted bullshit yeah. that so much of the series spends mired in. Like, I think about the others is... Like, there's this the phrase that comes up in Clash of Kings when Dany sees the prophecy of Egan, the mummer's dragon, and Jorah asks her, what's a, what's a mummer's dragon? And she says, you know, it's a, it's a cloth dragon that mummers use in their follies. It's there to give the heroes something to fight. And that's how I think about the others for me. It's like they're there to force everyone to get over their bullshit and move past their worst selves and try to rise to the occasion. And we see that in the series even before the others have arrived in force. That's John's arc and learning to get over his own kind of petty resentments and work for the betterment of humanity that Stannis's arc learned how to be a better king specifically by taking on the others. We see it with Tormund Giantsbane, who's leading the wildlings through the wall to kind of bend the knee to their ancient foes because the real enemy has already started, pull, you know, attacking their camp and he sees what the real threat is. So I think that's yeah. that's what the others are there to do in large part. And we, we see that, again, in microcosm over the course of this chapter with, with the end as we'll get to with Waymar Royce. Describing it as a microcosm for the main series is an excellent way of, or rather a microcosm of, of the Northern storyline as it progresses through the next five books is an excellent way of, of putting it. Um, but I was curious, um, were there things that you were particularly fond of in this chapter or are there things that you're like, eh, it's not, a, not, not super awesome. I mean, it's, it's a great chapter, but maybe there are some different parts of it that you're not, you weren't super thrilled with as you were going through it. Well, I mean, something I like about the chapter we've already touched on is the atmosphere, the way it's written, this this creeping dread, the sense that something is like just over your shoulder or just out of earshot. Like we've all been out in the woods at night and convinced ourselves that, oh man, there's a monster around that corner. And even as we tell ourselves, monsters aren't real, witches aren't real, it's just something you tell the kids. Part of your brain is like, no, no, it's very much real. It's very much here. Your, your animal instincts return, your hackles go up, and you're ready to fight a monster. And, that's, and this chapter is... 
if the monster is actually real, if they step out of the trees and they're right there ready to kill you. And so that kind of, that, that the dread that runs through this chapter, I think, is so strong. And, re and that's what really hooks you in, because, of course, we can talk in retrospect about how this chapter introduces the themes of Night's Watch versus the Wildlings, or that the fight against the others is the real fight. But none, none of that is clear the first time you go through the chapter. The first time you go through the chapter, right. what hooks you in is that mood that sense that something horrible is about to happen. That's what really pulls you in. I love that about this chapter. I think it's really vividly written, especially given that, again, most of the Game of Thrones does not deal with the magical side of the plot. This is an example of, of Martin really investing his writing in that particular part of the story and really making it come alive. I think the way he describes the others, which we'll talk about more in a bit, the way they kind of move and act and laugh, and the way he talks about the, the cold coming down and the slow build-up to the others emerging from the trees. I just, I love the writing of all of that. Um, the introduction of the uh, class dynamics, which is something we'll talk about a little more when we get to kind of the sections of the themes of the chapter, I think is something that's really interesting. Again, it stands out more in retrospect, maybe, but you can, you can already see in terms of how Will thinks about his own backstory and about how he and Garrett think about Waymore Royce, that the class dynamics of Westeros and how that plays out in the politics and the wars we see unfold over the series. You can see that's already being seeded right here in that initial chapter, so I do love that. I, uh, I love uh, Waymar's Last Stand, and that's another thing we'll develop more when we get to the theme section. I think that's this is something that really, really separates Martin from other fantasy writers, especially fantasy writers in the more grimdark end of the spectrum. The fact that he gives Waymar this last moment and what it comes to kind of mean for his character and how it kind of runs through the rest of the series to other kind of similar powerful last stand moments. I think that's something that's really emotionally powerful and uh, is, is, is very important to keep in a chapter, which is otherwise very bleak and grim, especially in terms of how it ends. And um, so I like all of that. The one, uh, and like I said, we'll expand on that further in, in uh, later sections in this episode. The one thing, the one major criticism uh, I would make of this chapter is that Will himself is not an interesting character. I would go so far as to say he's the least interesting POV we ever get in the series. You're right. I think, yeah, just objectively true. I think because he true. doesn't, he doesn't, the problem is he doesn't want anything. There's nothing he's working towards. There's no desire, even a negative, horrible desire that he's trying to attain. He doesn't seem, he lays out his backstory about why he got into the watch and it's clearly an unjust situation. But it's not, he doesn't seem angry about it. He doesn't seem, he's not like planning to mutiny. Garage, the right. one who goes for his sword, Will never thinks of going for his sword. He doesn't, he knows that Waymar is an asshole. He doesn't seem particularly like spurred to action by that though. Like if you look at even the later prologue POVs, like obviously it's easier to develop motivations with recurring POVs because you spend more time with them. But even the later prologue POVs get more than Will does. Like Crescent has this clear backstory with Stannis and this kind of, rationalist versus magical worldview struggle that's going on in his head that he wants to resolve by killing Melisandre. Chet wants to lead a mutiny against the Night's Watch and take over Craster's Keep to kind of work through all his stuff about gender and class he's been dealing with his whole life. Pate wants to run away from the Citadel because it hasn't worked for him and, and marry Rosie and have his beautiful life on the road. Even Varamir, like, you know, what he wants is horrifying. He wants to steal <laughs> Thistle's body and use it for the rest of his life. But it's a clear desire and a thread you can use to understand the character and what they've been through and how it connects to what's happening to them next. Will is just very much, a, even down to his name, is just a blank slate. We don't know much about yeah. him. We never learn more about him. I've always thought, like, it would have been so easy for, like, Martin to, like, have Arya run into Will's family in the Riverlands and they tell him about 
this young Will we knew, and he wanted so many things, but he, like, we don't even get that later on, like we do with some right. characters. Will is just a complete non-entity. He's just there as a vessel to tell, to, to introduce the others, introduce the Night's Watch, introduce these stakes and these dynamics. And, you know, there's, there's worse fates for a character, but it does, after reading the rest of the series and realizing how much how much motivation Martin invests in, invests in his various POVs, how strongly he brings them to life in terms of what they want to achieve. Uh, I think Will stands out for not wanting anything and not being an especially dynamic character. Yeah, I think you talking about him as a blank slate is an excellent way of, of approaching him. He's, he's, he's a plot vehicle to bring the reader into A Song of Ice and Fire, introduce us to the world, at least the, the northern world that, that we see in the first few chapters in, in a game of Thrones. Um, but I, but I agree. And I, I don't find will that compelling of a character. I, I find the two other characters, Waymar and Garrett much more interesting and compelling and uh, of interest. And uh, this is talking a little bit about the show is that they do change the dynamic a little bit in the show. And that, you know, in season one, episode one of game of Thrones, it's not Garrett who survives the chapter and flees South of the wall. It's will. And they do embed or, or rather imbue him with um, some vulnerability, I think I, I see on the screen. And um, you, you're kind of, you feel really bad for this guy that he just survived um, the terrors north of the wall. And now he's, he's about to meet Ice in, in, in Ned Stark's um, uh, outside of Winterfell. Uh, so that might be one area where I think the show might have done some good in, in giving Will a little bit more believability and humanity. Whereas in the books, Will is not necessarily the most dynamic character in, in all of the Song of Ice and Fire without any real motivations or, or reasons that he, that he is or is, or is being and where he's going and what he wants to do. Um, the things that I really like about this chapter is that I feel like that in this chapter... Martin hammers into what he thinks of about fantasy. He uses fantasy to tell a very human story. Even though Will is not super awesome as a character, Garrett and Sir Waymer Royce definitely are. And Garrett, you get this impression of this grizzled old ranger who's been on a thousand rangings previously, and he's just trying to make it through to the next one. He doesn't... He he wants to survive. That's his, his driving motivation. Meanwhile, Sir Waymer Royce is a young knight. He's only 18 years old at the start of, or rather at the start and the end of this, this chapter. Um, but he's this brash, arrogant noble of too many of having too many heirs uh, from house, house Royce. He, so he sent to the wall to gain his, uh, to gain honor and the night's watch, which is a great thing for, for house Royce to, to do. But, um, you have two. You have these two characters, and you and you do really get the sense of who they are and why they're important and why we care or don't care about them or like them or dislike them. Um, the thing that I I like about it is that in terms of trope wise, it reminds me of how a lot of military fiction or not even military fiction, nonfiction is told in that you have the young officer leading the grizzled old veteran who has to take commands from this naive an innocent kid who doesn't really know what he's doing, but he still has to obey the commands anyways. And I think that's a really good trope to, to kind of dabble in a little bit. Um, the other thing I really love about this chapter is that 
Um, and th this kind of goes to a little bit of meta side, but there is this element in the fandom which looks at A Song of Ice and Fire as kind of this anti-fantasy and that, you know, people are going to die and that Martin is just merciless and he he hates his characters, will kill them without mercy or with impunity. But no, not really. It When I look at this chapter and I read it, I'm really I'm reading a realistic high fantasy um, novel. You know, if, if this was some sort of like grimdark uh, fantasy like that Emma was talking about, you would imagine that everyone would have fled the scene or Waymar Royce would have, you know, sheathed his sword and run away instead of having to face the others and they would have cut him down on the run. Um, instead, you know, as, as we're going to talk about here in a moment, uh, Waymar doesn't. He he draws his sword and he holds his ground against impossible odds. And that's that's very romantic. And romantic not in terms of romance novels, but romantic in terms of romantic storytelling of, of Romeo and Juliet, of, of these types of of high literature concepts that, that Martin really indulges in in A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think it's a really great um, uh, way of, of telling the story. So if someone comes across to you and says, oh, well, you know, everyone can die. The story is is all about, you know, killing your favorite characters. Like, no, not. It, people do die in the story, but they die as a result of their choices they make along the way. And that's very true of this chapter as well. People don't die because some magical element intervenes, although it does. Um, they they die because of the choices they make. They go to the camp. They uh, they stick around the camp. They investigate the camp. They are then confronted with the others, and they don't run away. They, they make their, their heroic last stands, or they come down from off a tree, and they, they die that way too. Um, but, uh, but Emin, I'm, I'm really curious. I want to hear your thoughts more about this last stand, about Waymar's last stand, because I know you've been itching to talk about it, and I'm itching to hear about it. About sure. Your thoughts about it. Sure, yeah. For me, this the last stand is the most vital moment in the prologue and one of the most vital moments in the series, especially in terms of setting up how we're supposed to think about the others and kind of how we're supposed to think about, as you say, Martin's overall perspective on fantasy and war. So it, it, it kind of integrates these two themes of class consciousness and like the romantic last stand. So a lot of this chapter and the setup to it and the opening pages before you get to the others is heavily inflected with how Martin thinks about nobility and the kind of the class structure of the feudal society he's exploring because it's waymore royce is there's there's no reason waymore royce should be in charge of this mission he is an entitled young asshole with no experience beyond the wall uh he's really only leading the mission because of his name because he has a sir in front of it because he comes from a, a house that the night's watch which to cult wishes to call favor with and um he clearly, repeatedly thinks he's superior to Will and Garrod by virtue of his house, by virtue of his noble background, by virtue of his wealth. We get this moment where Will describes all his fancy clothing, he's got this sable cloak, and he remembers Garrod like, making a joke about how, yeah, Waymore probably killed all those animals to make that cloak too, the brave <laughs> warrior. And Will reflects to himself, and this is a vital line, that it's, it's hard to take orders from someone you laugh at in your cups while you're drinking. And that's definitely a key kind of class consciousness line from Martin as he's setting up that, you know, G.R. Mormont might say that the Night's Watch is all one great house and we're all here to defend all of Westeros together, but that's not the reality of how the Night's Watch breaks down. That Waymore Royce is, is drawing from resources that Will and Garrett don't possess, that that inf influences his attitude and how he leads them and how he just wants to be right all the time. Will has his own backstory where he talks about the reason he's at the wall is not because he's a murderer or a rapist or did some crime that we can all objectively agree is terrible. 
He was uh, caught in the Malister's own woods red-handed, skinning one of the Malister's own book, bucks. He's a poacher, and a poaching is an extremely politically inflected crime. It's, it's you know, oh, yeah. it draws from real history in terms of how the nobles kind of destroyed the English commons and fenced off uh, uh, collective land to use for only their own use and, and made it a crime to in any way draw the wood and meat and water and etc. from that land and kind of use that to impose their will upon the peasantry who were now kind of dependent on the nobility for their very survival since they were now cut off from, you know, sustaining themselves on their own. So this is, it's an extremely class-inflected crime. It's an extremely class-inflected mission. You already see how Martin is setting up this world within, wherein the 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 feudal nobles are have, have not earned their leadership capacity. They have not earned their their wealth, their power, and they are doing fatuous, silly, worthless things with that power. They get themselves and the people who have to follow them killed. And you get this contrast, like you say, with Garrod, who is a who has earned everything he has. Garrod is a veteran who knows exactly what he's doing beyond the wall. He is sacrificed, like. You got Waymar with his cloak and all his nice, all his accoutrements, and you got Garrett who has no ears because he went beyond right. the wall, and they, they were lost in an ice storm. Like, you have this very clear contrast about who is who is living the, the, the easy life and who is not, and and, the, and a clear economic and political condemnation in terms of why that has happened. So you have you have this set up within the chapter that. What Martin is saying is bad about fantasy is that we don't interrogate these things enough in fantasy. Like, the, you know, the brave shining knight. Well, why is he a knight? Where does that come from? Why does he have right. that sword? Who made that sword for him? Like, we have uh, the character of Duck, Raleigh Duckfield, in A Dance with Dragons, who talks about <laughs> his father made him a sword for his own use, and then the local uh, lord's son took it away and said Duck wasn't worthy of it. Like, so let's, you know, Martin is saying, let's think about where all these these images in your head come from and what actually backs them up and is that is that worthy and on the other hand though after all that is done after you get all this set up that Waymar has led them into a trap that he's an unworthy leader that he's only in a position to be a leader because of this this exploitative and unfair system that has screwed over Will and Garrett their entire lives after you get all that when Waymar Royce realizes that he is doomed that the others are surrounding him that they all have their swords up that he is screwed it would have been so easy, as you said, for Martin to have him drop his sword, beg for his life, run away, or say, Will, Will's up in the tree, get him, spare me. Like, we've all read that book. We all know exactly yeah. how that goes. It would be, it would, it would fit with that deconstruction of the class privilege and the, the feudal nobility that Martin is aiming at. Instead, what happens is that Waymore raises his sword and looks the other defiantly in the eye and says, dance with me then. And Will yeah. thinks to himself, up in the tree watching, at that moment, he was a boy no longer, but a man of the night's watch. That Waymar finds it's it gets my just saying that got my hair standing up in my arm. It's just Same. such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful spine tingling moment where this complete asshole, not just evil but like petty and stupid, like just not even someone you respect in the way that you respect like a Tywin or a more powerful villain. He's just yeah. he's just a jerk. But in this moment, he finds the true steel within himself, and he's, it's a, Sir Waymar finds his fury and he yells Robert's name as he makes his final stand. And it doesn't save his life. Like, uh, being an awesome badass in his final moments does not spare him. He still goes down. The others butcher him mercilessly. And no one will ever know that he did that. Garrett didn't see him do it. Will gets killed immediately afterwards. Waymar is turned into a white. This will never become public knowledge. There will never be songs sung of Waymar Royce's last stand. It's not something that gets swept up into the overall kind of meta-narrative, but it is, it's is—it's—it's there for us. It's there for us to recognize and realize, and in, in his final moments, Waymar Royce proved himself something more than just that random asshole. And that's something, that's an idea yeah. 
that, you know, doing the right thing even when it doesn't reward you for it is still the right thing to do, that's an idea you see cascade down through the rest of the series. You see it in Brienne when she's on the road and she stands up to Rorge and his boys and thinks to herself, no chance and no choice. I'm going to die probably, but if I want to be a true knight, this is the kind of thing I have to do. Or Davos at, at, at the Merman's Court in White Harbor, telling the phrase they're liars and they, they're awful for doing the Red Wedding, even though he knows it might get him killed. But he's still going to do that. And I think, again, that's Martin taking aim at the genre in one sense, in that he's saying that so much of fantasy tells you that if you take that stand, you will be rewarded. If you do the right thing, you will be named king, you will get the girl. And he's saying that's not... That's a terrible lesson to teach people, and that the lesson you should yeah. be relaying is do the right thing even when it costs you. Do the right thing even when there's no reward. You know, it's, it's the it's the Captain America line. When all the world is, is telling you to move, you plant yourself and say, no, you move. And that idea, I think, runs throughout the series. And it's it's for me, that's way more interesting than just the grim, dark, oh, he turned out to be completely worthless after all, ha-ha. Like, I think it's right. it's way more interesting to say that no, he can find that something within himself, but that, that that doesn't make him the protagonist or the hero or the mean he's going to beat the others. It's just the last final thing he found within himself before the end. And for me, that's it's the best of both worlds. And I think that's a really powerful blend of cynicism and romanticism in a way that I think transcends both. Yeah, it's 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 realist. It's it's realism for for lack of a better term. It's real. It's, yeah, I agree. It's and it, and it's real. You you feel it. We can feel the hair on our arms standing up when. Uh, when when Waymar makes his last stand, when Waymar says "dance with me," we can feel it when Brienne does the same with um, the Bloody Mumbers in, in a Feast for Crows. But there are consequences to them making their last stand. You know, Martin doesn't rescue Sir Waymar Royce or even Brienne. Really, if you think about it, I mean, she loses half an ear, right? If, if I'm not if yeah, yeah, right. She kills Rorge and then immediately Biter jumps on her and starts biting off like yeah half her face. I, I, I remember. I remember everything she loses, but yeah, it is an immediate, like, you did the right thing, but, you know, the monsters are still right there. Yeah, and and, and I I love that part about A Song of Ice and Fire, and I feel that, I feel that appeal very strongly, and, and that Emmett's talking about that we've all read these grim dark, not just fantasy, but fiction stories where doing the right thing gets you killed with, with no reward, or that basically doing the right thing means equals that you're stupid. And that is something I'm looking forward to attacking when we talk about Ned Stark's arc, because that is a common fan perception about Ned Stark, is that Ned Stark did the right thing, and he's dumb. And doing the right thing is dumb, so don't do the right thing, kind of is, is, is the um, conclusion that some fans make about Ned Stark's story. Um, but I'm sure we'll have lots of time to talk about that. Um, I mean, but, my, f- but yeah. Yeah. my favorite line but, in the whole series is, men's lives have meaning, not their deaths. That comes in the in the middle of Quentin's arc, and it's such a powerful statement because we're all gonna die. Like being an awesome, righteous, badass hero and saving the girl and swinging a sword. Like in the real world, that doesn't you know you're not Aragorn. That doesn't mean you're gonna last five hundred years. You're not gonna get that extra special life. You're not gonna you you don't you are you are ultimately helpless before the abyss as much as Waymore Royce or Ned Stark yeah. or Tywin Lannister. You, you know that. You you are always gonna eventually face that, but what ma- what yeah. means something is who you are on the way is is what what kind of person you want to be, and that that means something even if you never end up with the crown, even if you lose like Ned did, and like you say, we'll have plenty to say about Ned. It certainly certainly is not 
doing the right thing that brought Ned down. What brought Ned down was being really shitty at his job, but we will, we yeah. will get into that later in the book. <laughs> but yeah, like for me again, yeah, men's, men's lives have meaning. It's, it's like, yeah, Waymore Royce died, but Waymore Royce was always going to die. As soon as the others surrounded yeah. him, Waymore Royce was screwed. What means yeah. something is what he decided. He had those last few moments that were, that were just for him before he got turned into a zombie slave. There were those last minute where he got to make a decision, and that's the decision he made, and that's great. And ultimately, that's all any of us can do. Like Most of yeah. us are, ne are never going to be the prince that was promised. Most of us are never going to be in a position to save the world or fix the world or change the world. Mo what most of us are going to do is be up against this abyss of horrible, conflicting, confusing decisions and do the thing we hope is right and hope that that's enough. And for me, that's, that's, that's a much more kind of powerful and and realistic expression of that kind of romanticism than just, you know, you draw your sword and the others flinch in fear and you've, you've won. Like it's, it's yeah. or, and as you say, it's, it's also more realistic than just way more proving a coward. It's, it's trying to find that balance. And sometimes Martin goes too far on one side or the other, but it's trying to find that balance where you invest in the character and you, you, you are proud of them for doing the right thing, but you don't, you don't think that the entire system around them is going to automatically reward them for it. Or, or the, the line from Sansa the Sandor about Gregor, he was no true knight. Like, on one <laughs> level, that sounds naive. Like, of course, like, tr you know, true knights do that kind of horrible thing all the time. On the other hand, what she's saying is, you know, what knighthood means is not just the sword on your shoulders. It's not just the sir in front of your name. What knighthood means is a value. It means what you yeah. do. It means your actions. And that's something that Brianna upholds, even though she is no true knight, even though she's literally not a knight. Or same with her yeah. ancestor, Dunk who was a knight who remembered his vows, as they call him, despite never, probably never having taken those vows in the first place. Or Davos, yeah. who's a, the, Davos is the, you know, your, the, the perfect image of an honorable, worthwhile lord, of a worthwhile noble doing what's best for the people and calling his king out, even though he was born in Flea Bottom and has no connection to any of these blue bloods or any of the, like, you know, Dennis Malister of the Night's Watch letter says that, you know, you need to be trained, you need to be brought up in the proper ways of nobility to know how to handle <laughs> yourself. And Davos proves that that's bullshit, that yeah. he came into this with his own values and did far better than the Florence ever could have dreamed of doing. Yeah. So I think that that balance he's trying to cause where it's like, he's like, yes, the system is horrible, but you, the individual, can still live up to the values that that system is failing to embody. It's, it's, a very, it's, it's connected to superheroes in a way where you see like, superheroes as knights errant or like superman or captain america upholding the values of america even if america itself is as an institution is not upholding those values and i think that's that's what martin is aiming for and it's a kind of romanticism as you said it's it's no coincidence that martin's first work of published pub, uh, being published was in writing to uh to stanley in Absolutely. the 60s uh or in the 50s i'm, I'm not mistaken, i'm not sure when exactly it was um and then Martin has taken some of these concepts from the Silver Age of, of comic books and has applied them to the fantasy series. And I think that's an awesome way of looking at it. And I really don't have anything really to add besides that little factoid about Martin one time getting published in a, uh, to, a letter to the editor to, to Stan Lee. Um, but, and, and we could talk about William Royce all day on that last stand. And I'm sure we will event, we will go, we will, that'll be our touchstone going forward of, were they were they Wilmer Royce? Were they not? Or were, did they did they did they um, ascend to the level that he did, or do they not quite meet the standard? But uh, in in light of trying to keep the, the discussion progressing forward, I was I was curious um, 
and I know you've been doing a lot of talking, and I apologize, but I was curious. You you have an interesting um, note here in our document about the others, about what they're like, and and their prey. And I was wondering if you would expand a little bit about what your conception of the others is. Oh sure. I mean, the way I think about the others. I mean, the origin story that the show presents is certainly possible. I have some questions about the timeline and the history of the children and how that works out, about the, the children creating the others as a weapon. But the way I've always thought about the others, regardless of the specifics of their origin, are as basically bad elves. They're fairies. They're, 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 they're the kinds of fairies from fairy tales who steal your livestock and kill them, which the others do, who steal your children, which the others do, who are, are presented as both kind of beautiful and terrible, in this way where the others, you know, the others are not orcs. They look much more similar to Tolkien's elves in terms of how they move on the snow, how they're presented as very kind of elegant and, you know, and, and skinny and very fluid and flexible. Um, and they are they are attractive in that way. And that there's, it reminds me very much of the elves in Terry Pratchett's Discworld who are presented as very, very cunning and beautiful and impressive and charismatic, but utterly horrifying in terms of the way they treat human beings who they treat as just prey to hunt. And Terry Pratchett has this whole passage in Lords and Ladies, which is one of my favorite of his, where he talks about, like, the roots of adjectives that we use to describe elves. Like, you know, they weave glamours. They are glamorous. They, 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 are, they have enchantment, so they are enchanting. But that we never call them nice. We call them beautiful. <laughs> we call them glamorous, enchanting, overwhelming. But they're not nice. They're not good people. They don't, they don't treat others well. And for me, that's, that's always stood out to what the, what the others are for me. And, and of course... Uh, as something Pratchett addressed in, in terms of like naming a book like that, Lords and Ladies, you know, elves and fairies and fairy tales who do this kind of thing, who are exploitative, who run around in a giant horde, swallowing up your children, were in some ways attempts to deal with how the nobility behaved and how the nobility treated peasants when they would just, you know, roam by on their fancy horses with their nice clothes and do whatever they wanted to you. And that I think partially what Martin might be going for is, is that the, the others are in some ways this kind of epitome and exaggeration of everything that's wrong with the Westerosi noble class. That they are like, they are Weimar Royce turned up to 11. That they take everything that's wrong about him, his arrogance and elitism and dehumanization, and they are kind of the ultimate metaphysical example of that in terms of how they enslave creatures and, and what their goals are for, for humanity. And... So yeah, that's always been my conception of the others. And you, uh, you had brought up an excellent uh, quote from George Martin describing the others to an artist. So yeah, you want to well, delve it, into it, that? It, it, doves, it dovetails nicely with your conception of the elves as never described as nice, but as beautiful, as glamorous, as elite. Um, and this, this quote comes from uh, Daniel Abraham, who is, um, he's written a number of great fiction, the uh, the stories that I've been enjoying of his of recent is the Expanse stories, which he co-writes with with Ty Frank, and he he does the he writes the um, the Song of Ice and Fire graphic novels. So he wrote the a Game of Thrones graphic novel uh, a couple years ago, and he he reached out to George and asked him about the others, and George told him what the others are in his mind. And this is George writing to Dan Abraham, and he says, "quote The others are not dead." They are strange, beautiful, like what Emmett says. Think, oh, the city made of ice, something like that, a different sort of life and human, elegant, dangerous. Um, for those of you who don't know, Sidhi are from Irish and Celtic mythology. They are, um, 
elvish i guess is, is that the best way to describe yeah they're 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 of... fairy creatures there's like the it's the like the classic seely court versus unseely court divide from fairy tales where the seely court are like the, the children of the forest basically the nice okay. nature loving benevolent fairies and yeah the the city or the others and we're drawing from kind of the unseely court which is they they tend to roam around the night with a with a, a gigantic undead horde so that fits the others of course immediately <laughs> And they, yeah, they, they, they roam around, you know, steal, you know, like, it's classic fairy tale things. They steal your children, they kill all your livestock, and there's the, like, you, you know, if you eat of the fruit of their world, you'll be caught within it forever. And, like, again, there's connections to, like, Greek legends with Hades and the pomegranate and all that. But, yeah, like, this, that, by bringing up the city, by describing it that way, Martin is very much kind of establishing the others as within this kind of folkloric fairy tale tradition of these, these beautiful, impressive, all-powerful creatures who kind of exist just to make mortals' lives miserable. And it's it's like it's 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 a flip side of the idea that the fairies are benevolent. You know, these this is not your your fairy godmother. They're not here to help you out and help you achieve your goals. That they they think of you as as prey or toys yeah. or they're, they're just they're they are creatures whose whose elegance and beauty does not speak to inner beauty, I guess is a way of putting it. So they are they are the inverse of a character like Sandor Clegane or Brianna Pichon. Yeah. Where the 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 rough exterior reveals the the inner worthwhile that they are they are Tolkien's elves. I mean, even Tolkien's elves were clearly assholes a lot of the time in a way that even <laughs> Tolkien didn't seem to realize sometimes that he was writing them this way. But they, you know, this yeah. is this is Tolkien's elves with that consciousness clearly in mind of like this is like they wouldn't help you out, hobbits. They wouldn't be giving you dinner and like sending you on your quest. They would be toying with you and killing you and taking your stuff. Is how yeah, these creatures he, would probably behave, and for me, that's what the others are. Is it, was it the way that Martin describes the um, the battle between? Again, we're going back to Waymar Royce and his, his last stand, but he says that the others' stroke was almost lazy when he came at came at Waymar at the very end, like he is toying with him throughout the the entirety of this um, this exchange that he has, and that's that's really uh, interesting. Um, that that's the way that Martin. Uh, describes and i think like talking about them as as dark elves or i don't know dark elves or just regular elves um is is a great way of of really bringing that all together i completely agree with what you're you're saying about um about them kind of supposed to be this kind of terrifying force that is like you say lazily dealing with way more it's not even a challenge not even a threat they're laughing as they kill him and i agree that you know that's kind of setting up these themes that'll carry forth for the rest of the series so one idea you had that i really liked was the prologues, and specifically this prologue, is kind of an establishing shot for the series for Song of Ice and Fire. So, we, we, yeah, want to elaborate on that? Yeah. So, um, is the the prologue from A Game of Thrones is an establishing shot, but unlike all the other prologues from the rest of the series, it doesn't only establish A Game of Thrones. It has to establish the entire series of A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, before we get too far along, just to define terms in case nobody knows, um, the establishing establishing shots in movies are shots in movies where the context of an upcoming scene is shown. Think the Dark Knight shot of the two fairies sailing to safety in across the fairies before the Joker forces yes. them to make an awful choice. Yes. Um, like I said, prologues in every single book of No Song of Ice and Fire do this, but they but this one does it for the entirety of the books. The Game of Thrones prologue has to establish the first book, but also establish the, uh, establish the series. So we talked about this at the beginning of the episode where the game, the game of Thrones prologue um, 
brings us that the true threat is from the others, that the true threat is not from House Lannister or from the Dothraki or from Viserys Targaryen or any of these other tertiary characters. It, the true threat is, is coming from the true north and the, and that threat is coming from the others. Um, and And the question that you have to ask yourself as a reader is, does that work? Does the establishing shot of the prologue work? And in my opinion, and I think Emmett's as well, Yes, it, it does work. It establishes the Night's Watch. It establishes the Wildlings as humans, if nothing else. It establishes the others, for sure. And in fact, like we said before, it's, it, it is the most information we get about the others that we'll, we'll get in the entirety of the five published books. It brings about the class dynamics, which is something that Emma talked about wonderfully for, for a little while. And then it talks about magic and how magic has been forgotten and the others have been forgotten. But they live on in this world and they live on in the story. Um, so everything that happens from a game of Thrones flows from this chapter and it serves as an overarching, um, shadow to the rest of the story. And, you know, in the very next chapter, you have Ned Stark meets up with a character from the prologue that is Garrett. Um, and then everything that happens after that, as we talked about, Rob Stark marching the wrong way, the dead men come walking in the night, do you think it matters who sits the Iron Throne, Seth the Demon has talked about, that has all been established by the prologue in that we know that the threat is from the others. We know that they're powerful. We know that they consider humans an insignificant threat, that they're insects to them, that they can dispatch with them easily and then raise them from the dead. It sets the stakes and it creates an atmosphere of tension for the reader and that we're like, shit, <laughs> we can't, there's, there's no way we can deal with this as it stands right now. But, you know, so few people come to recognize the threat, even in the five published books, even by the end of A Dance with Dragons, the people are still trying to kill themselves for the Iron Throne. They're still marching the wrong way from the wall. And... You know, this 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 prologue establishes that why they are marching the wrong way, why killing each other for the Iron Throne is is maybe not morally wrong, but is at least mis a misplaced priority, and it, and it's it has a uh, an impact for the rest of the story. And you know, as you read a Game of Thrones, even into the very last chapter of A Dance of Dragons, and hopefully into The Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring. Keep this prologue in mind because it does establish the true threat to the realm, to the characters in the story that you care about, that we care about, and you know, to it establishes that plot. It establishes the ultimate villain of the story, at least so far as we know, that the others will be the end game boss, so to speak. Beautifully said, sir. I can't. I can't. I agree with everything you just said. I think that's exactly what this prologue setting out to do in terms of its relationship to the broader series and I agree I think it I think it succeeds marvelously uh, but speaking of uh, connections to the rest of the series uh, jumping off of that there's a couple of interesting little little bits of uh, trivia we can examine that oh, yeah. literally link this prologue to the rest of the series that we were noting while uh, rereading it uh, one thing I was thinking about is you have the the interesting little moment where when Waymar draws his sword, the others, and like you say, the others are otherwise very confident, almost lazy in their taking down of Waymar. But there's this moment when Waymar draws his sword and the other halts 
And like he, Will notices the others looking at the moonlight, running along Waymar's soil, like checking out the material. What's what am I dealing with here? And that's a great hint that the others remember how they lost last time around. They remember Lightbringer. They remember Zora High. They remember Valyrian Steel or you know Dragon Steel or whatever. You know this was before the Valyrians, but they remember some kind of enhanced sword-based process, if you will, that was able to defeat them last time. And they are remembering it this time. So again, your first time through the chapter. You don't necessarily know what that means, but the very fact that the other is halting looking at that sword lets you know, as you say, that there is a way. As hopeless as it seems, there is a way of beating them. And that, that's a nice little seed that the rest of the series will kind of go on to, to water. It's, it's a great point that was brought up by, uh, by our friend and debate sparring partner on occasion on Twitter and elsewhere, um, Joe Magician, and that he had a great essay from 2015 called A Cold Death in the Snow, in which he really expounded on this and why the other halted there, um, among other things. And, and we will link to this essay on, on Twitter and elsewhere. But it's it's fascinating to think about that Martin had some, and, and you wonder how much he had figured out at that point, or you wonder if some of this stuff kind of developed as he went. But he seemed to have some sort of idea that swords and that Valyrian steel and different that had some sort of magical properties that the others feared and that became a big part of what ended the first long night and you know what might end the uh the one to come in as as the dance of dragons closes and winter starts to close around westeros um and and i love this idea of, of connecting this chapter to the rest of the story because you know we get to talk about stuff from our favorite book a dance of dragons and one of my all-time favorite scenes from *The Dance of Dragons*, and and this won't be one that many people would consider their all-time favorite scene, but is the scene where the wildlings are coming through the wall, and I, I consider it a beautiful scene where old enemies don't become friends because again, this is a realistic fantasy, but they become, um, they they come to accept each other in in, in some sort of fashion. But uh, part of the agreement is that John. Uh, says that the wildlings need to turn in their weapons before they come south of the wall. And as you would have it, the sword that Sir Waymar Royce had, the, that he wielded against the others, reappears at the end of A Dance of Dragons. Um, and I'll read this this full quote, and, and unfortunately it's a full quote, but then I'll highlight the portion that's important. Um, so this is John observing the wildlings coming through the wall, and it says, quote, As they passed, each warrior stripped off his treasures and tossed them into one of the carts that the stewards had placed before the gate. Amber pendants, golden torques, jeweled daggers, silver brooches set with gemstones, bracelets, rings, and yellow cups, golden goblets, war horns, and drinking horns, a green jade comb, a necklace of freshwater pearls, all yielded up and noted down by Bowen Marsh. Okay, so all that stuff, the wildlings are giving up all their, their earthly possessions to get south of the wall. Here comes, uh, and then it says, one man surrendered a shirt of silver scales that had surely been made for some great lord. And here's the important part. Another produced a broken sword with three sapphires in the hilt. Now, if you're reading through the first time, or even the second time, or the third time, this might escape your glance, or your notice. However, consider how how similar this is to another sword that we see and of course the sword being Waymer Royce's sword in the storms in, in a Game of Thrones. And here's the quote from the prologue, quote, Waymar tied the destrier down to a low-hanging limb well away from the other horses and drew his long sword from its sheath. The important part, jewels glittered in its hilt and the moonlight ran down the shining steel. And then um, we also see later in 
that chapter that the sword is broken by the others when the the other sword breaks the sword um the other the ice sword that the others wield breaks the the valyrian steel that or the the sword that Weimar Royce is is wielding and so we see in the dance of dragons that the sword is broken and yeah and it's it's a cool connection that George connects the very first scene from the first book to the um, to a scene at the end of A Dance of Dragons, and you have to wonder how did they get the sword? And I'm, I've I've been I don't know I, I I don't have a good theory. I don't think there's one that's currently out there that I really necessarily subscribe to. But I think it's interesting to wonder how the Wildlings got Sir Waymo Royce's sword or the the remnants of it rather. I agree. It's a great it's a great little moment. Like you say, your first time through, you'll never notice it. I didn't notice myself until you pointed it out. But it's a great way of linking the beginning of the story to this point in the story. I mean, the you know this particular saga has become so far flung with so many characters and multiple different continents and new characters introduced every book that you need those little moments to tie everything together and sometimes they're very subtle like uh, it reminded me of the the faceless man who pops up in old town in a feast for crows and unless you're good on your game you might not notice that the description of that faceless man is the exact same face that jock and hagar turned yeah. into at the end of his time with Arya two books previous so that it's the same guy but Martin doesn't tell you that straight out. He doesn't emphasize it. He just describes them with the exact same words and lets you to leaves you to realize that that's what's going on. And I think that's that's an excellent, great little subtle way of, of world building. And yeah, I love that little moment. I love. I agree. I love that overall scene with the wildlings coming through the wall. It's very emotional. But I think yeah, there, I love that little connection to the very beginning of the series. I think that's great. Yeah, and and not to like you know, kind of thump our chest our chest about how awesome we are, but. That is things that we hope and, and that we hope to pick up in um, as we're going through this reread and hope you guys enjoy as well is, is that picking up things that, oh, wow, I never realized that like the first or the second or the third or the fourth time I read it. And we'll talk about something here in a moment. This is the first time that I had seen something in this chapter. I was like, holy shit, like this is something that I never saw before. I actually read. And again, I've, I've read the books probably five or six times at this point, probably about five times in total. Um, but reading this chapter um, uh, brought something else to, to the forum. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, another interesting little bit of uh, little detail that connects this chapter to the rest of the series. Not quite like direct link like the sword, but a more kind of thematic foreshadowing is you have that moment where I mentioned earlier that Garrett goes for her sword when Waymar is, is dismissing his, his advice and expertise. Uh, so Will could see the hard glitter in his eyes as he stared at the knight. For a moment, he was afraid the older man would go for his sword. It was a short, ugly thing. Its grip discolored by sweat, its edge nicked from hard use. But Will would not have given an iron bob for the lordling's life if Garrett pulled it from his scabbard. And that really sets up strongly the Night's Watch mutiny that will later consume a lot of a storm of swords. Not just in the fact that it's a Night's Watchman potentially mutinying, but it's, it's the specific class dynamics and this idea that the kind of elitist, detached, noble leaders of the Night's Watch have blundered into this situation where they're getting the common man killed, that will, yeah. this is kind of, again, a microcosm of that that gets blowed up into widescreen when you get to Storm of Swords with Chet's planned mutiny and then the mutiny that actually gets carried out of Craster's Keep. Again, it's not a direct link. You don't see Garrod say, like, I've been talking with this fellow Chet and here's what he has to say. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a thematic link in terms of it's laying down the dynamics that will later kind of explode into open violence when it comes to a storm of swords. So even, you know, even though this is right at the beginning, it's under the surface, but the dynamics within the Night's Watch that you see in this chapter are not just there for world building. They're there to you know, kind of influence the plot in later books. And I think that's, that's something interesting to note on reread. It is. And like I said 
as an establishing shot, it works to have payoffs from this chapter then emanate out into a Storm of Swords and even into a Dance of Dragons because eventually you, the mutineers, are confronted by by Bran Stark and Cold Hands in, in Bran's first chapter, which is going to be a really interesting discussion, a really interesting ethical discussion, too, if we, we get down to it when we get to that in, in a couple of years, I guess, at this point. Um, the, the, the final thing that's a, an interesting connection, and this is the thing that I was referencing earlier, is that um, I was reading through this chapter, like, literally, like, minutes before we came onto this podcast, and I came across this line that just kind of punched me across the face. And here's the, here's the quote. It's, quote, A cold wind was blowing out of the north, and it made the trees rustle like living things. And it kind of, like, just hit me like, like a ton of bricks. Because in A Dance with Dragons, you have this whole dialogue between Bran Stark and Leaf, one of the children of the forest, about the nature of the werewoods and the nature of the trees and what happens when people die. And... There's a whole discussion about what the werewoods and the trees, where they come from. And Leaf has this interesting thing, which should be an interesting connection to this prologue. He says, quote, Instead, the children of the forest had the trees and the werewoods above all. When the children died, they went into the wood, into the leaf and limb and root, and the trees remembered. So what Leaf is talking about in that chapter from A Dance of Dragons is that in some sort of process, perhaps seen in Bloodraven, probably most likely seen in Bloodraven, the, the first men and the children of the forest became trees and they lived on past their, their human lives. So there's a sense that the trees are living and that they're human in a sense, perhaps separated by hundreds, perhaps separated by thousands of years at this point. But there's some sort of humanity still embedded in the werewoods, in the trees, north of the wall, perhaps even south of the wall. So I found that to be an interesting connection because when you, you look at this chapter and you have the trees that are quote-unquote rustling like, like living things, I look at it and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, man, it feels like something that Martin intentionally embedded in the narrative in order to set up this idea that the trees are more than simply vegetation or more than simply things that will, um, you know, that, that set atmospherics in, in the storyline. Here it seems like that Martin is using atmospherics and vegetation as a cover for something a bit more in the story, which is something that is explored throughout the story, but is, sees some culmination in Bran's final chapter in A Dance of Dragons, where it's revealed that the first man and the children of the forest, and before they died, they allowed themselves to be absorbed into into trees and into the werewoods, and um, they live on in some fashion or another. Yeah, I think that's a great catch. Again, that's something I didn't notice till you brought it up, but I, I love what you said there about like using atmospherics as a cover to kind of it, subtly introduce some important world building for the series, and I think that's absolutely true. You know, we can. Martin calls himself a gardener as opposed to an architect in terms of his storytelling style, that he, you know, doesn't have any, everything planned out from the start, that he sets some things up to follow up on later, or doesn't, or he, he comes up with ideas as he goes. But, you know, something that I think has stayed strong within the series from the very start has been his kind of, the, yeah, the angle on the weirwoods and the old gods as kind of this observing, interfering force. You already have 
Like when, you know, the, the dire wolf comes south to deliver the pups to the Starklings, you have Bran talking about Winterfell as this giant stone tree he feels kind of intuitively connected to. You have the connections between the birds and the weirwood. So I think it's I think it's definitely fair to say that he already had that kind of uh, theological slash magical setup in yeah. mind regarding the weirwoods. And that, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that was a direct hint because it fits into everything else we said about the chapter and about the prologues in general, about these characters stumbling into these magical situations and not really realizing what's happening or what's going on or how, how they are to affect their situation. And that fits that if Will kind of senses for a moment that the trees are alive, that the faces are real, but you know, then quickly has to move on. It doesn't, doesn't get the chance to really act on the import of, the, of that at all. Yeah. He has to, he, he's being like, Oh no, but it's, it's something in my, in my mind. There are no monsters there. The trees aren't real, aren't living. It's, they're just trees. Right. But you know, in, in Martin's world, they're not just trees. There are monsters that actually exist in this world. And I think that's a interesting, um, uh, a point to talk about. Um, but Will is, uh, well, it's interesting. You, we we talked to him about him how he was kind of a bland, one-dimensional point of view. But do you think that there's, I don't know, what would you call it, like a point of view bias in Will that you see in this chapter that maybe the things that he's observing are not objectively what's occurring around him? Or are there things about him that make him unique as a point of view, as opposed to, say, a Jamie or a John or an Eddard or a Catelyn or Sansa or any of these different characters that we see as the Game of Thrones progresses? Uh, that's certainly a good question. He is a small folk POV, and that is something that separates him from every other POV character in this first book. Uh, where, you know, I mean, obviously, John faces social prejudice. Uh, Sansa and Arya and Catelyn have had to face various levels of bullshit for being women, and Dany as well. Uh, Tyrion faces all kinds of social ostracization for being a dwarf, but one thing they all have in common is that they're all noble born. And they've all had, to, they've all taken part in that system, and they've all kind of benefited from it, whether they like to admit it or not. And Will, right from the start, is again this character who is very reason for being at the wall, speaks to how unfair that system is, and his perspective on Waymar, like I said, is very much rooted in this. Like it's hard to follow a guy we all laughed at when we were getting drunk. Uh, so that that perspective <laughs> does set you up to be skeptical of Waymar. It's not it's not quite like an unreliable narrator thing, because Waymar genuinely is an asshole. But it does, it does set you up to expect the worst of him, I think, deliberately so that it's more of a twist when he turns out to actually have something worthwhile underneath in that final stand. So yeah, I think that is, that is, there's, that is subtly there in Will, that, that kind of bias. But again, I think, it's, I think it's there to be, you know, subverted by the end of the chapter. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, and I find, and I find it, again, so fulfilling as as a story storytelling motif in that Waymar is not ultimately as he seems that he's more than as he seems and, and that's and, that, and that's great and and I really enjoy that and, and I feel like I've emphasized that a few times but I can't emphasize it enough in my own head um but uh so uh, not to not to pivot too much but I but I have this really awesome theory that I feel like that you're going to love. You're oh, ready? do tell, Jeff. Do tell. Okay. So, I feel like I'm going to blow your mind. So okay. So, I want you to be, like, sitting down. Don't be standing up or anything like that. I'm ready for you. All right. So, what if the others, otherwise known as the White Walkers, are... Ready? <gasps> yeah. The good guys in the story. What if they're, like... There's been, like, this 
major misunderstanding and that we're reading the perspective of the villains of the story and the perspective of the villains and the villains are the humans, not the others. Tell me, I just like, there's like an, an exit wound out of the back of your head right now. You, you got, you're going full galaxy brain there, Jeff, to borrow from everyone's favorite <laughs> meme. Yep. Yep. This is a, a distressingly commonplace argument within the fandom about the nature of the others. And look, there's clearly a mystery to the others background. There's clearly more we information we have to find out about them. Uh, and that we are clearly being deliberately denied that information from the start. But the notion that people have taken, yeah, beyond that suggests that the others have like fully sympathetic motives and that humanity's the bad guy and that we're encroaching on their territory and that it's like breaking of a treaty. It's like, it turns a song of ice and fire into Ferngully. It's Ferngully now, Jeff. That's what the story is. It's just a story about how... Did you Ferngully? Ugh. It's... it's... <laughs> It's, it's, it's just a story about how mankind is bad and that we're the worst and that the solution is that we all just kill ourselves, I guess. I don't know what like the actual end game of that is supposed to be other than making you feel bad. But like it's I don't know, it, it, that, that annoys me for a variety of reasons. But the, the number one reason it annoys me is I think it misunderstands the structure of the story and how the others play into it. Because, yes, like, that works as a story model. Like, you, you, the characters go in with bigoted expectations. You, as the audience, follow along with their expectations. And then the people that you were bigoted against turn out to be completely different or sympathetic or fully human. And, like, you're supposed to go, oh, okay, I was short-sighted, as were the characters. I understand. Like, that's... I'm a huge Star Trek fan, and that right there is the foundation of a good 75% of TNG episodes, is like, oh, we've discovered a new people. We have to learn that they, they too, are worthy of respect, blah, 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 blah. That's fine. It's a solid, solid story model, but that's not what this is. Like, we already had that story between the Night's Watch and the Wildlings. Like, that's what this prologue lays out. Those are the people who need to get along and improve their relationships, is the Night's Watch and the Wildlings. And they need to do that specifically because the others are coming to kill everyone. Like, this isn't... Westeros is not prejudiced against the others. Westeros does not hate the others. Westeros does not treat the others poorly. Westeros doesn't think the others exist. Westeros <laughs> has forgotten about the others. It's not that there is this hatred that needs to be... There's not a dehumanization going on that needs to be disrupted, and, like, we need to understand the others better. It's that everyone thinks the others aren't real, and that's a gigantic threat because the others are real, and no one's taking it seriously. Like... Martin has laid out very clearly. He has this, this, this quote about, like, you know, the the individual book titles refer to the Civil War, but the title of the series, you know, tells you that the real issue is north beyond the wall. That's where the fight mm -hmm. is. Like, Martin yep. has made it pretty clear. He wants more people on the wall, not fewer. He wants Westeros to be more paranoid about the threat of the Long Night, not less. Like, there's not going to be this twist where, like, Westeros finds out about the others, and then, like, a day later finds out that, oh, they're people after all. We were wrong to hate them for that one day that we knew they existed and could possibly <laughs> form a conclusion. Like, it's all wrong in terms of the story structure, in terms of what people know about the others and how they're dealing with it. I agree that, you know, looking past our differences and working together as people is a strong theme with the Night's Watch and the Wildlings, but I think extending yes. that to the others, I think, really misses the point. Yeah, I, and I wonder if it's just a really bad misread of a, a couple times that Martin has made this kind of thing of we don't need Dark Lords, we don't need any more, here are the good guys, they're in white, they're the, they're, the, they're the good guys, and here are the bad guys, they're in black. They're also really ugly, the bad guys. 
and it kind of feels like that people take this and be like, oh, well, that means that there's that the others are, are are much more complicated and complex, and they have these really intricate morality systems, and maybe you know humans are the ones that started the war because they're north of the wall, or and you start to get these really complicated things of some sort of pact at the night fort that just doesn't read as congruent with the text there's no other way to put it. there's it's, it doesn't read as congruent with the text and it reads as it almost reads as fan fiction um i'm not saying the people that are theorizing about this are, are are bad people or anything like that but i do think that they're they're tragically misreading what a song of ice and fire is and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about early on is that this is not the song of ice and fire is not an anti-fantasy or is not a grimdark fantasy where we're in the perspective of the villains of the story. There are villains that whose point of view that we'll, you know, explore. People like Cersei, people like Victarion, Aaron Greyjoy to a lesser extent. These folks are not the good guys of the story, but they're not the ultimate endgame bad guys of the story. Humans are not the ultimate villains of the story. The others are the ultimate villains of the story, and that's something that the prologue sets up. Um, even though the others have things like weapons, a language of some sort, armor that seems to shift with the light, um, maybe at an active camouflage type stuff that you might see in a game like Halo. Uh, that's probably a terrible um, comparison, and I apologize, George R. Martin, if you ever listen to this for that. Um, but one of the things that we know is that George R. R. Martin is told... Um, he talked with his, his co-writers from The World of Ice and Fire, Elio Garcia Jr. and Linda Antonson, and he said that the others don't have a culture, they have weapons and armor and language, and then this is their editorial note from Elio and Linda, they said it's it's a very peculiar thing, and I agree it's a peculiar thing in that you can have a language, a weapons and armor, but not have a culture. But really, if you think about it, the others are... Um, all of their culture is derivative from humanity, right? They have swords, they have armor, they have a language. These are all human traits, right? These so anything the others would bring to the to um, the forum are are ultimately derivative of, of human culture, um, and which is something that's brought to brought um, especially to bear in the um, in a storm of swords where Samuel is talking with uh, Craster's wives and finds very strong hints that the that Craster is giving his sons to the others and you realize that the others at some level may have some sort of human component to them however much that has been changed by whatever magic goes into them creating them as others but i i wonder whether some of the meta fan thought about the others being the good guys or being some sort of like true neutral or whatever you want to put it as kind of comes from this idea of A Song of Ice and Fire as just a gray series where you just have 100% gray characters across the board. And I feel like, well, I've been talking a lot, but I feel like that that's a a misread of, of Martin's world. And I want to kind of get your take on on this whole idea that, you know, you have characters like Jamie and Sansa and Theon, or not Sansa. <laughs> well, if you don't like Sansa, you might put her in that category. But no one here dislikes Sansa, Jeff. I don't like this. I do, I do not dislike Sansa. I like Sansa enough. Let's go with that. <laughs> we'll get more into that in later episodes, no doubt. But yeah, I take your point there that you have these characters who 
are, are more on the gray spectrum as opposed to like lighter, darker or any of these types of things. And, and I feel like maybe that people look at that and they're like, oh, well, there, there has to be some sort of greater ambiguity to the others. And, and I'm not sure that that ambiguity exists necessarily. I agree. I mean, that moral ambiguity doesn't apply to everybody. Like, Gregor's still a monster. Yep. Like, Ramsey, like, yeah, we learned that Ramsey doesn't like being called Snow and prefers being called Bolton. Like, great, hooray. Like, that doesn't make him, that makes him more of a complex character. It doesn't make him more of a morally complex character, though. Like, that's, for me, that's the distinction. Like, you can fill out someone's backstory, you can make them a whole human being. That doesn't mean your moral perspective on them necessarily changes. Or it, it can even go on the reverse. Like, Tywin arguably gets worse the more you learn about him. As, the yeah. more you learn about it, what a hypocrite he is, and how kind of he, he did exactly the things that Tyrion does, and just wasn't able to deal with the fact that Tyrion was more open about it. And like, or, you know, that, or we learn worse things about Oberyn as we go along. Like, it's not... It's not necessarily this this one-way trip where, like, you hate a character and then you are taught better. Like, that happens with some characters, but not all the evil characters develop that way. And again, like, characters like Jamie or Theon, our perspective has developed because we spent time with them. So, like, yeah. that, that to me is, like, it's that's fair on a storytelling level. Like, Martin didn't just tell us to start feeling differently about Jamie and Theon. He gave us reason to. He showed us. Yeah. Rather than telling us. Whereas with the others, we don't have any... That, that has not happened. We've had, not had that process where we've spent time with them, where we've been to their cities, and we understand that, you know, that they're just trying to defend their territory or whatever. That has not happened. Nothing like that has happened. So if that turns out to be the twist, I think it's going to be fundamentally unfair and unworthy storytelling, because we had no way of coming to that conclusion. Yeah. We're working on what we're given. The others are this unforeseen hidden threat. They're not a discriminated against species. Like, what you said about that line about, like, yeah, Martin doesn't want any more Dark Lords. He doesn't want guys that are... He doesn't want the villains to be the ugly guys dressed in black so that you yeah. just instinctively put your prejudices on them and make them the villain. But the others aren't that. They're pretty. That's the whole point. Yeah. They're not orcs. They're elves. They look... They have a language. They look advanced. They look like they're a race above you. And yet all yeah, they do is laugh and kill you. Like, for me... strange and beautiful, right? Exactly. Like, like for me, that's, that's where that kind of idea of Martin's comes into play. It's not that the others secretly have a, a nice, squishy, eco-friendly motivation. It's that they are beautiful, elegant, you know, awe-inspiring creatures whose only purpose is to destroy all life. Like, it's not just that they're fighting humanity. They're enslaving bears. They've enslaved other animals. They've enslaved horses. Like, they're not... There's no way to coexist with them, I guess is the yeah. way I would put it. Whereas with humanity... There is a way to coexist with humanity, I think. And, right. And for me, that's the crucial distinction. The others, like, wh like, where is the example in the story where the others try to put down their arms and make peace, and humanity said no? Like, when, what, what possible example of that, of anything like that, have we seen? There's like the others are always the instigators every time. Right. I just, I just, I just, I just don't see it. I get the theme, but I think it's, I think it, like you say, it's being misapplied and misread. Yeah, it, it, it is, and. If you're going to take away anything from this podcast, the others are bad. Humans can be ambiguous. And if you believe that the others are good or that there's some sort of complex, morally complex beings, then your theory is bad and you are ugly. <laughs> Amen, brother. I think that uh, that probably pretty much does it for, uh, for the first chapter, the prologue of A Game of Thrones, unless you got anything more to add. No, man, this is, this is a lot of fun. It's... Um, 
for those who who have been paying attention to our social media, this is our our second attempt to record this podcast, and uh, I think it's actually better the second time than the, than the first time. Would you agree? Or I agree. I agree completely. Yeah, it's, maybe we should just do this every time. Exactly. So always have, have a dry run. Yeah. Right. Um, so. You know, thank you everyone for for listening to us for however long this podcast is right now. Um, because we're, we're we're new at doing this podcast thing, even though that we've had experience in being um, guests on different podcasts, we we really want to know what you guys like or didn't like about the podcast. Let us know on social media at our um, our individual Twitter accounts, Brenda B. Fisher or Poor Quentin, or or Tumblr accounts, or on the um, the dedicated podcast twitter which is at not a cast a-s-o-i-a-f um let us know what you like didn't like whether there's format things that you'd like to see change or whatnot i'm not going to say that we will absolutely change things if you think that something is not good um but you know we we're, we're, we're open to to criticism i think we both have fairly thick skin you know maybe amen not, amen you know not like you know steel thick skin but yeah you know, i mean if, have... you, if you come at us talking about how renly is okay we're just gonna block <sighs> you with fire yeah, but just, other just, than that we're cool on principle we're just gonna block you <laughs> is awesome um but but yeah so let us know what you think um what you liked and like and just let us know on, on any of the social media accounts that we have uh even though it's the first episode um hopefully you found us through itunes or through google play um if i can figure out how to upload to google play i think i've got itunes um, down right now but on Rate us and review us if you like what we see. Um, even if it's, even if it's the first episode, we it will help folks find us and kind of share in the community, which is something that we're really interested in fostering and um, the different things that we do. We, we want we want to foster a stronger, more coherent. <laughs> that sounds arrogant. More um, more thoughtful song of ice and fire community, and we hope this podcast helps to do that in a small way. Absolutely. I couldn't have put it better. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. And like Jeff said, let us know what you think. And we look forward to having you back for later episodes. Yep. And the next one is going to be Brand 1, the first brand chapter, which is the genesis of all of A Song of Ice and Fire, as you'll come to find out here in one week from today. So thank you very much for listening. Yep. Looking forward to that. Thanks for listening, guys. Catch you next time. The Nana Podcast podcast is written by Poor Quentin and Brendan Beefish. The music is by Cat Nights Begin. The two songs you heard, the intro song is called Jewel Fruit, and the outro song is called A Long Goodbye. Hope you guys have enjoyed. Take care. See you soon. <laughs>